Thursday morning at 13 minutes before the hour. There's a brand new book out there. Rabbi David Beshevkin has released a book called Sin Agog, and the emphasis is purposeful. Sin Agog, as in S I N. How does he have the nerve to turn that beautiful word synagogue into one that starts with S-I-N? We will ask him that question. Sin and failure in Jewish thought. Rabbi David Bashevkin is director of education for NCSY, the youth movement of the OU, and instructor at Yeshiva University where he teaches courses on public policy, religious crises, and rabbinic thought. He's pursuing a doctorate in public policy and management at the New School's Milano School of International Affairs, focusing on crisis management. And he points out, not we, he points out, that he has been rejected from several prestigious fellowships and awards. Rabbi David Bashevkin, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you so much for having me. You feel it's important to remind people that you have not had only success in your career. Indeed, indeed. It's in my official bio, it's on the back of the book, and it's a measure of pride. It's funny because uh, this book to me uh, really was was two-pronged because of this little note that you included in your bio, and then of course speak a little bit more extensively about um, in a couple of different parts of the book. Uh, one is of course this unbelievable analysis of sin, which I never in a million years thought there's that much to write and talk about. Uh, when it comes to the topic of sinning, which we'll get to. But the other one was this, um, I believe, desire among most people to hear the real story about our leaders of yesteryear and today. I think people would like to, it reminds me, by the way, of a someone who I'm sure you've heard of, I won't mention his name in this context, but someone I'm sure you've heard of, a well-known religious philosopher, Orthodox Jew, who when discussing this topic once, with him, he said, I would just love to know what the Chavetz Chaim did when he had to go to the men's room when he was wearing tefillin. In other words, I understand the argument or the position that certain details of you know Torah giants and other people who are admired in our history, I understand that certain details don't need to be discussed, but there's certain aspects of their lives that I think need to be emphasized were simply not perfect, did not always go Exactly right. And I think that that might be the best lesson for our next generations. Your comment. A hundred percent. I discussed this in the introduction. Right. And I think that, you know, when I was a kid, my mother uh, read me stories. I read all the uh, the art scroll books and I love them. And this book is not meant to replace or undermine the importance of talking about the sanctity and the reverence that we have for our leaders uh, but I compare this as adding another texture, a little bit more texture, a little bit more context to the role of sin and failure, both in the lives of our leaders and, and more importantly, in our own lives. Uh, it's not a tell-all. It's not a national inquirer on the uh, on our gedolim, on our leaders. It's a, God forbid, it couldn't be farther from that. But it is talking about that sin and failure is something that our tradition and, uh, and our Misora talks about a great deal. And the reason you point this out in terms of the bio that we discussed, where you add that little blurb about, about your shortcomings, let's put it that way, is because you've revealed, or at least you made me think about this through, the, through this position in the book, that, that all of us really do what we're yelling 
at everybody else for doing, meaning that when we put together our own bio or speak to our own children, we, we hesitate to talk about our failures. We hesitate to discuss our own shortcomings. And it, it got me thinking. It got me thinking that it, that it might be really beneficial for parents and for Jewish leaders to include a little bit of that in their regular presentations. A hundred percent. I mean, one of the nice things, and I could also uh, blame my parents for this, is I actually grew up in a home where we were very comfortable talking about our shortcomings, not in a... uh not in a malicious way, God forbid, but in a in a very warm, friendly way. Uh, I grew up in a home where talking about our accomplishments was something we embraced, but talking about our shortcomings in areas where we struggled was something that we uh, focused on uh, e- with an equal sense of humor. And I guess when a parent transmits that to a child and they get the feeling that that's normal or in some cases even to be admired, then it just makes growing up a little easier. Yeah, I look at it as a uh, as a as a picture that has texture and different colors and different shading. And if you have something that has a very static, very uh, clean look, it kind of loses a little bit of the nuance, a little bit of the beauty. And sometimes, you know, sometimes our lives look like Jackson Pollock paintings, which mm. you know has the paint splattered all mm-hmm. over. The ones that frustrate me tremendously. Exactly, <laughs> uh, but but it's important to have shading in your in your painting. You know, I was trained as a, as an artist in my very early years. I used to charcoal, and the way that you paint a charcoal is really just through highlighting the lights and darks, and the overall holistic image emerges from that. And I think that's a little bit of what this book is trying to add to the conversation. Rabbi David Bashevkin is here. Why write about sin? There's so many great topics out there and so many wonderful positive aspects of Jewish academia and general academia. It must be interesting, you know, diving in and delving into this topic for a, an extended period of time. For sure. I mean, I, I have a stack of books on my shelf, thank God, about a tshuva and doing mitzvahs properly and about inspiration. But I found that the way we talk about it is we'll talk about doing things better, giving more tzedakah, doing more teshuva, all this stuff. But what this book is really talking about is not looking at failure as the absence of good, but there is a way to actually fail proactively in a smarter, more sophisticated way. What, I, what I've said in the past is that every year before Yom Narayim, we always you know, hear rabbis telling us you have to do more mitzvahs and better mitzvahs. And I think that we also need to do better averos. And the way that we fail needs to be done in a smarter, more strategic, more learned way. Uh, so that way we're able to grow from them. And that requires us to be able to talk about sin as well. Meaning if we had, <laughs> this has to be clarified. <laughs> I said better of errors, not more of errors. Yeah. Just to be clear. Meaning by better that if somebody understood what they were doing more or thought about what they were doing more, then it might in the long run help them. Is that what you mean by that? To a degree, I remember I heard from Ritzimar Zilberg um, once, uh, who's a Hasidic rabbi, lives in Eretz Yisrael. He came to speak uh, at Rav Moshe Weinberger's shul, and he spoke about people who, do, let's say, were dealing with the, with the attribute of anger. And he says that, uh, you know, people look at it a lot of times as a binary. I want to do better. I want to do more mitzvahs, so I'm never going to get angry again. But they don't really have a guiding philosophy of once you get angry, let's, let's say you did it already. Right. 
So should you just throw in the towel? How can you still make a negative experience something that has a, a positive learning outcome? But why wouldn't tshuva be the answer to that? In other words, when someone does something or does or behaves in a way that they feel was inappropriate or something that they don't like about what they've just done, what other than trying to do it differently next time can one do? I agree. I'm, I guess I'm expanding the definition of tshuva to not just include the absence of bad and the presence of positive, but part of tshuva is the way in which we look at our negative traits. Tshuva can't just be the eradication of bad, because then none of us will ever do any tshuva, because we're always going to have elements of negativity in our lives. Part of the tshuva process, and I look at this very broadly, very in a maximalist way, as a book about tshuva, but it's not the tshuva of okay, now we're going to really be perfect this year. Uh, it's a tshuva about looking at all of our warts and scars and figuring out where in the larger narrative of our lives do they fit in. Because all that that you just described can make someone a better person. If they understand where it fits in, if, if they get you know, what role that sinning or those episodes have in their life, will they in fact, do they in fact have the potential to be better people? With, with, without a doubt. I mean, we, we don't, the, the goal is not necessarily uh, perfection. That's, a, that, that's almost unreachable. We're supposed to try to grasp it, but the goal is to try to figure out a cohesive narrative right. that has a trajectory towards perfection, but that can encompass every aspect and of our lives. And that'll bring this full circle, um, meaning what we've been discussing the last few minutes, that, that is the frustration that often uh, disturbs especially younger people, when we, when we present certain people in our history as being perfection. Exactly. As the, being perfect. There's no place for parts of their lives in the grander narratives that we talk about in Judaism. Right. When Judaism doesn't have a, a, a place for the realistic narrative of what our religious lives really look like, so they end up going elsewhere to find a place for them. And the important part is, is creating space in Yiddishkeit in Judaism to discuss and to process uh, even our scars, uh, not just our successes. Um, that is why when people quote, and I got to be very careful how I say this, and I don't, I'm not forcing you to agree with this, but I'm curious about your reaction. That is why when people quote legitimate Torah giants on certain topics and offer the opinion that they give, very often I will say, is it possible? that they're making a mistake? Is it possible they're misguided in there? And, and that is where a lot of conversations today begins in the Jewish community because there's a significant portion of the Jewish community who refuses to go there, who refuses to acknowledge that it is possible, in fact, that this rabbi or a group of rabbis s simply are either making a mistake or are you know diverting from the real issue. And you know I think it's only those who are willing to admit or agree that you know that that mistakes or or thoughts could be off could be a little bit you know could I'm trying to say this as carefully as yeah. possible. Uh, you know, it, it's only those who can get in, uh, you know who, who can get into the conversation about that topic. If you're not willing to agree that everyone has imperfections, then certain things are impossible to to discuss. Yeah, I mean, I have a whole chapter on failed leadership um, and how we process and look at leaders who fail. Unfortunately. Uh, especially in the last uh, 10, 15 years. I mean, Jewish Action ran a cover on this. I have a little bit of a different approach. Uh, the concept of failure in leadership is something that 
we need to find a better language for. I don't really talk about mistakes in halacha. I think that's more of a, uh, a halachic uh, discussion, and I think that there are some elements in the halachic process which allow us to even look at maybe possible mistakes in Pesach as something that can still be included in the Mesorah. What I'm talking about are leaders who disappoint us, right. and how do we process that? Right, and it could be even, and in many of those cases, it's leaders who are, are sincerely behaving the way they think they should or the way they think they should lead. We're not just talking about people who are doing things, you know, th- that are obvious anti-halacha or obvious don't fit into Jewish norms. We're talking about people who are very sincere but but could be either misguided or made a bad decision. I think a, an overconfidence, and this is what I couch the entire chapter, and an overconfidence in the righteousness and in the certitude of the leaders themselves is very often the first mistake that that leaders make uh, when they start leading their congregants or students astray uh, because they're in it for themselves and they're not loyal to the needs of the people who they are leading. Very good. Rabbi David Beshefkin is here. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com on the Nahum Siegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. The book is called Sin, S-I-N, Sin Agog, Sin and Failure in Jewish Thought. Uh, am I the only one who cringes that you've taken this beautiful word, synagogue, and have started it with S-I-N? No, no, get in line. There's plenty uh, of cringing out plenty there. Plenty <laughs> of cringing out there. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the uh, uh, the, the name and the cover. Uh, the, the suffix agog, obviously it's a pun on synagogue, and you know, right. you, you got to sell books somehow, and it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not easy in 2019. A lot of books coming out, so this was an easier way. But the suffix agog is a word that we use. It's the suffix for pedagogue yeah. or for demagogue. Agog means to grow or to lead. And what this book is about is sin agog, somebody who is kind of guiding or leading the way through sin. So it's a, it's a, it's a regular suffix that I've appended with a wink uh, to, to form the word synagogue. Anything else about the cover you want to mention now? Yeah, no, I'm very proud of the cover. Uh, I really began with the cover. It's a picture from a Israeli, a secular Israeli photographer named Menachem Kahana who came out with a gorgeous book called Haredim uh, where he was given unprecedented access to the Haredi community and I found one of his pictures before I even wrote the book. It was actually my inspiration for the book. And it is a picture from behind the Belzer Rebbe. And what enchanted me so much and why I made it the cover is because there is a little boy hiding underneath the table, which right. we highlighted, uh, who has this forlorn look on his face. He looks so lost. He's listening. He's in the room, but he's not quite at the table. And I think in some ways this is a kind of artistic analogy and depiction of the readers who I am trying to reach, the people who may not have a seat at the table. They're in the room, but they're trying to figure out how is my story a part of the larger table of Jewish conversation. You know, your name came up this past weekend as one of the few people who would be very comfortable in almost any Jewish environment. From Hasidic to the most left wing. That means a great deal. Well, don't tell the Hasidim and don't tell the left wingers. Right. I got to keep them all in separate rooms, but uh, or separate magazines. Or separate magazines, but uh, that's a, that, that's a point of pride. Uh, you know, the new school is very different than Mishpacha magazine, and uh, and I am very blessed to be embraced by both. Um, all right, there are a few things I must ask you about this book. Uh, firstly, you do discuss sinning as an action versus sinning uh, as an action with intent. 
Uh, I mean, I, the most easiest example for us, you know, someone walks into a room on on Shabbos and turns on a light. We know that that was done by accident, and and we would assume and suspect that up there, you know, there there's been no mark in the book for doing that. However, if someone you know blatantly wants to be Machal Shabbos or, or or do any sin that you and I you know grew up knowing is is in fact sinful, sinful. Um, then with the intent involved, obviously it would be a much different story. What can you tell me about that whole So this element? chapter this chapter is the one where I feel like I was most nervous to lose the readers because it has a lot of technical legal analysis. The basic question that I wanted to understand in this chapter is why is it that in American law, if I, God forbid, pulled out a gun in the Nahum Siegel network offices and fired a shot and missed, I would be arrested for attempted murder. But the concept of attempt is not clearly articulated by halacha. If I went to Besden and you tried, is there a concept of attempted uh, crime, so to speak, right. in Jewish law? Why don't we have the concept of attempt? And it's really an analysis of the difference between American law and Jewish law and the role of thought and action uh, in those two arenas. And the way that I end the chapter is really the clincher, uh, which is while... Thought alone does not have the same weight as it does in uh, American law that it does in Jewish law necessarily. And by thought you mean intent. I- intent, right. correct. Uh, there's a beautiful line from Rav Hutner, and it's how I end the chapter, where Rav Hutner basically says, I'll, I'll read it in Hebrew, but I can translate it, because okay. Where what little effect that uh, thought has with sin that we do talk about that the thoughts of sin can have a more deleterious effect on a person's soul than the sin itself. Rav Hutner says the thoughts of Kedusha, the aspirational uh, thoughts that we have, may be even greater than Kedusha itself, which I think is such a powerful way to talk about intent and compare intent and sin versus intent and in, in Kedusha and aspirationally, which is how I end the chapter. But it, it is a, a more of a legal, technical chapter that starts off with a very juicy legal case about the cannibal cop. You'll right. have, to, you have to read inside. I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to share the details on the radio. Yeah, I saw that. We won't do that. Um, so you've just given a big endorsement for Kumzitz, and Jewish music, frankly, because what Rufutner is saying, if I if I read you correctly, is that um, when one has thoughts of inspiration, when one when one puts themselves in a frame of mind, as many do, when you know a nice song is playing, or whether you know at a Hasidish tish or a kumzitz, etc., that experience might be even I don't know if we want to say holier, but might be more beneficial to the Jewish soul than than going out and and doing something holy or purposeful. I, I think that's exactly the case. I like the translation of beneficial. I think it's similar to uh, the words of the Svas Emes where he talks about uh, preparation being a, a part of the act of Kedusha. Aspirations have a tremendous amount of weight in our lives. They sometimes carry more weight and are more reflective of who we are and want to be than our actual accomplishments. And I think that's a little bit... Um, related to this discussion of intent, uh, both in sin and in Kedusha. Rabbi David Beshevkin is here, and on the flip side, then, you'd have to say um, that when one spends their entire day, like the cop in your book, spends the entire day with evil thoughts and terrible things going through their head, that could be a million times worse 
than actually going out and committing a crime or committing a sin. Uh, religiously, religiously, right, I'm saying, yeah, a hundred percent. In American law, I don't know. Right, you know, he was. A, you'll you'll read inside. Right. He was acquitted ultimately. No, but my point being spiritually, spiritually correct. That's but spiritually, a, the deleterious effect of being consumed by negative or the positive effect by being consumed by positive aspirations can be more beneficial than right. accomplishing the, the reason things. I say it, and I know that these conversations sometimes go in directions you don't expect so I apologize for that but I think it's important the reason I say it is because when we as parents or others you know um, instructors rebbies etc when we want to do something positive for the children out there we sometimes don't realize that just giving them an alternative to help clean out their minds and give them a a nice Jewish experience that could be so important and so vital and such a great use of time. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of those who have Saturday night programs. When I was a kid, you know, there was no such thing as a religious Saturday night program. And now you have people who are gathering, you know, fathers and sons and, and other things mm-hmm. and concerts, love of Malkas, et cetera. And you've given me a greater appreciation for what that, what those things have in terms of the role in raising our children and being a positive force. With young kids especially, I think it's one of the hallmarks of Jewish music, and particularly of the Hasidic world, right. is that they've emphasized that aspirational education, particularly at the young age where you lay this bedrock that allows them to return to this aspirationalism, even though we know as adults it's rarely, if ever, grasped. But right. once you lay that bedrock, it allows them to return to that place of purity and aspirationalism mm. uh, that can guide them for the rest of their and lives. I'm, and I'm lecturing an NCSY legend about this when you, when you, hardly, when you, when hardly. you, when you've experienced all the havdalas and kumzitzes and all the other parts of the of the program that really are there to just, you know, again build people up spiritually. I, those who know me in the context of NCSY, it's never culturally fit me like a glove. I was never the guy on top of the table dancing. Uh, I was rarely the person uh, dancing and pulling people in in circles. It's not my personality or style. But the newfound appreciation that I did have for the NCSY Havdalah was at Yarche Kala last year when I had the zuchus, the merit for the first time in my life, to hold my child during Havdalah. And somebody filmed me and my son Zevi, who's two and a half, uh, dancing during Havdalah. And I see the residual effect on my son. He watches the video of me and him dancing in Havdalah mm. uh, every single day. And this is already a few months ago. And I see the role that that plays at this age to lay that foundation of the excitement and the aspirationalism of, uh, of Yiddishkeit. That even if you, you, know, you have those calluses of cynicism that grow later, and we all have them. I certainly do. I'm covered in them <laughs> like a seasoned guitarist. My fingers are covered in uh, cynical calluses. You publish them on a weekly exactly. basis. <laughs> but, um, but to hold, to, to hold a, a young child and give him that experience and allow him to return to it for the rest of his life, it, it gave me a newfound appreciation for what we do. Rabbi David Beshefkin is here. The book is called Synagogue, Sin and Failure in Jewish Thought. One of the, and, and I'm watching the clock because I knew this would go too quickly for me, one of the um, frustrating things about about Jewish history, and I have to be careful again how I say this, that you point out in the book, and let's see how far you'll go in terms of agreeing with me, it, it, it is frustrating for good people to know that our humankind and our Jewish people were founded in an atmosphere of wrongdoing. And you pointed out in the book, I mean, Adam and Chava we know about, but beyond that, of course, when we get to our own people, Avraham does in fact tell a mistruth, which I know the rabbis try to explain when it comes to saving his own life, you know, when, when traveling with his wife. Um, we know about the 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 um, 
the should we say lies? <laughs> the lies told by Yaakov in front of his father Yitzchak, making believe that he was in fact Esav. Um, you know, and and there uh, and we certainly know the terrible sin of what the brothers did to their own brother, and and that ended up being the basis of Jewish history. So, number one, before you discuss the importance of all those episodes in terms of our history, am I right to use the word frustrated or? Or you know, difficult for us who are raised to be good people and do only the right thing, and that, and these Jewish heroes in our history, in fact, did involve themselves in some type of chicanery. I I I have mixed feelings. Uh, I have a good friend uh, Zev Elef who wrote an article on this that's quoted in the chapters on failed leadership that goes through the tendency to ascribe you know, psychological or, uh, you know, it puts all the biblical characters on the psychologist's couch, and that's something that I uh, very much move away from. That's not something that you'll see in the book, though I discuss the tendency. Uh, the, the thing that I do talk about, and, you know, it starts with Adam Machava, is the role of sin in the creation story, namely that sin was not necessarily a deviation from the creation story, but it was an act of creation itself. Right. And I think that in the Jewish people, uh, in, the for, in the formation of the Jewish people, we do have at a lot of these pivotal moments um, acts of whether you want to call them sin or failure or deviations from ideals, because I think... In the fabric of the Jewish people, I wouldn't use the word chicanery, uh, but I would use the word um, that there is an aversion to despair. We emerge from crisis. The Jewish people were forged in the cauldron of crisis, and that is where, as a people and as a as a species, as the as as, as the humankind, as depicted in the Torah, emerge from crisis to kind of instill within all of us. Jewish people, and I think the world as a whole, uh, the the ability to have resilience even through crisis and the knowledge that our true sense of self emerges through our negotiations with failure on a collective level and on a personal level. Even if that failure is self-made and... Well, that, that that's a great pun. All failure is self-made because as I talk about in the first chapter... The creation of self is what was then, came through sin. Then maybe because other people are involved, it seems worse to me. In other words, if someone sins against God, okay, you know, now, now they have to deal with that issue. But when when someone sins and the act does have an effect on somebody else, and the stories that we're quoting, in fact, they do. Um, I don't know. It seems it seems worse to me. It seems like it's not just a a self-made mm-hmm. now i need to you know figure out how to correct this myself it's it's you've gone ahead and included somebody else in the whole it, it, it's it's certainly worse but the ability to expand the way you define yourself and connect to others i think the opportunity becomes much richer when god forbid you wrong somebody else you wrong a community uh it requires a much richer and more sophisticated type of resilience uh, to heal those wounds, and, and a greater person can emerge from those crises. And why can't our commentators s- settle with the fact that, in fact, you know, one of our forefathers lied or, you know, or, or, or said something that was really, you know, if one was being 100% truthful, would not have said. They, they have trouble doing that. I, I, I don't think that they have trouble. I think we have trouble doing it because we're projecting our own difficulty with failure 
on our avos. If we look at failure as a diminishment of ourselves and we ascribe the reasons for failure to whatever pop psychology term is popular at the time, and then we ascribe them to the avos, we're diminishing everybody. We're diminishing the avos and we're diminishing ourselves. If we have a grander narrative for the place of failure in our own lives and in the lives of the Avos, uh, that we do see the Rishonim doing, and that isn't diminishing the ideals and the stature that they have. If anything, it is elevating both the role of sin in a formative part of our lives and who the Avos were and what they were able to overcome. Rabbi David Beshefkin's here. One of the most important things in the book, as far as I'm concerned, is your... um, is how you make sure to note that there are many different words for sin in our tradition. And every one of those has a different connotation, a different intent sometimes. I mean, you can give us a quick list, no? You could tell us a... Well, uh, well th- we, we have a lot of biblical words for sin. We have chet, avon, pesha. The question that struck me when I was writing the book is the word that we probably use the most and hear our uh, rabbeim and teachers quote the most is the word avera. Like we had so many great words, like why on earth? Avera does not appear as a noun in the Torah. The word la'avor as a verb appears, but the word avera was invented by the Mishnayis and, you know. And my question was, is like, wh- what was wrong with Chet Avon and Pesha? Why on earth did we feel like, you know what we need? We need one more word for sin. Like, is that what Yiddishkeit was missing? And uh, I think that the word Avera is actually telling, uh, has some very beautiful values buried in it that made it very necessary uh, to create a new word for sin. And like I talk about uh, in the beginning and end of the chapter, um, you know, there was a sociologist, Frank Boas, who used to say that, you know, Eskimos have so many words for snow right. uh, for every different type of snow because they grow up in this wintry environment. Right. So it's somewhat telling that the Jewish people have so many words uh, for sin. And like the Gemara says that in the future when we're forgiven for everything, our sins should be as white as snow. It is my hope that one day uh, snow will be used to describe our sins as well. Mm, amen to that. Um, every one of those that words you mentioned can be categorized differently, right? Different types, different intents. Exactly, di- yes. Different, I guess, long-term effects or or maybe um, a, a, a viewed differently in the relationship with God, right? When one has correct, either a correct, or correct. avon or pesha. That's a discussion in the Gemara and Yuma that I talk about, about right. the difference between chet, avon, and pesha. Which one is the most serious? What are they all different describe? And then I spend the the second half trying to dig down and talk about what the word avera. Why, you know, it's so interesting. The word I've always been fascinated by words that are created uh, by the by Chazal that did not appear in the. Uh, in the uh, in the in the Torah itself, or in Tanakh, my dear friend uh, Mitchell First of Tinek, uh, he he writes about this a lot. He's like a linguist, but I just focus on Avera. But some other words that were created, Teshuva, uh, as a noun, does not appear uh, in the Torah. The word Lashuv appears, right. but why did we create some of these words? And I think Avera is a really fascinating window to understand why would we create a new word for sin? Mm. Didn't we have enough already? Um, do you view Yom Kippur differently after researching everything for this book? Yom Kippur, I've always agreed with those, <laughs> agreed, not, not that they care that I agree, but I've always agreed with the Torah giants who have pointed out that Yom Kippur is their favorite day of the year. For some reason, I love Yom Kippur, and it might be the 
again the 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 cleansing the the higher spiritual plane that you're on because of the the lack of the the basic physical stuff that we don't do in Yom Kippur things and whatever the reason do you approach the holiday of Yom Kippur as an important national day differently now that you've done all this research on sin Without a doubt. I mean, uh, every year on Yom Kippur, I, uh, I'm i in Toronto every year by the shul of Rabbi uh, uh, Yosela Joe Kanofsky, who's a Chabad Rav who runs, a, it's not, not, not a Chabad shul, but he's a wonderful, wonderful Rav. I've been going there for close to a decade. And I have a chapter over here that likely went with my copy editor, uh, Jonathan Engel, who's wonderful. When he went through the book, he said, if you get into Cherem, it's going to be this chapter. <laughs> He knew in advance, uh, but I have a chapter called uh, Does God Repent? It's the last chapter when I talk about the nature of sin, and it talks about ascribing uh, sin, so to speak, to God himself. And a lot of what that chapter talks about is how I've shifted in the way I view Yom Kippur, and that I look at Yom Kippur uh, less as a uh, unilateral approach of me making amends uh, with God, but Yom Kippur has a bilateral component where we're both making amends with each other, like uh, like a couple who's been fighting the whole year, disappointing each other, frustrating one another. Uh, on Yom Kippur, uh, we're both doing tshuva to a degree. Anniversary uh, dinner. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and for sure, uh, my relationship to Yom Kippur has, has changed a great deal uh, since kind of writing that book and, and certainly in light of that chapter. How long does it take to research this book? How long does it take to write it? It's a great question. I had a lot. Well, I put out a, a Hebrew work before this called Barogiz Rachem Tizkor. Uh, not exactly a bestseller, uh, thank God. Like uh, even at like, the farm sale. Even at the farm sale. <laughs> even like this one. You got to give it a catchier title. I was gonna call it Averos Kehilchasa. That would have sold a lot of copies. Uh, but it was Eloi Nishmas, my grandparents. I said they went through enough, enough in this world. They don't need their tribute uh, in in the next world to be Averos Kehilchasa. Um, but, but I, I, I had a lot of the, uh, rabbinic research done in the Safer, and then there was a lot of academic research, you know, there's a long bibliography yeah. in the back. A lot of footnotes, a lot of bibliography. Um, thank God. I, I get a lot of support from, uh, from NCSY and from Yeshiva University in, in the work that I do. And it took me a few months, uh, to write and research. I, I did both simultaneously. I did a chapter by chapter. And uh, thank God I had a little bit of siyata deshmaya in getting it done. Well, Rabbi uh, David Bashevkin's uh, uh, hardcore fans be frustrated that there's not enough humor in this book. Will that be an issue, do you think? Will they be disappointed when reaching the last page and they haven't been laughing out loud? <laughs> That's, uh, there are winks. There are winks. There, it's certainly not a, a top five uh, mishpacha column, you know, top five averas. I, I, mishpacha wouldn't let me do that one. Um, when I when I submitted the manuscript, it gets uh, reviewed by anonymous reviewers, and one of them likes head exploded. These are serious academic people, because in one of the footnotes, uh, I quote my own Twitter account. <laughs> And they lost it. They said this guy is quoting his own Twitter account, so he wasn't a part of the uh, the Twitter the Twitter Hevra, who I who I think in the back. I think a lot of the virtual cohorts that I was they're a part an important of, part of your uh, life. Absolutely, the Twitter Hevra was uh, was a big part of this book, and they're thanked uh, in the back for sure. Unbelievable. Well, it's uh, it's very interesting. I found it fascinating, and uh, I, I find that the older one gets, at least in my case, the more complicated these issues become. For sure. And, you know, I'll, I'll say one thing that 
I think that the fact that I write like the humor columns for Mishpacha and write a book like this, th- that's coming from the same place. You know, if you read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and I heard this uh, in the Hespid that my dear friend Josh Grayjower uh, gave uh, f- for his wife, uh, he quoted this, uh, a passage from, Ma- from Viktor Frankl where Viktor Frankl really highlights the role of humor in dealing with crisis, failure, suffering. Uh, there's no better tool than humor itself. If I could write uh, a second or third book, it would be the role of humor and laughter in, uh, in sin and failure. It's such an important strategy and approach. And uh, I know in my own life when I'm going through something bad, I, I listen to, to a ton of stand-up comedy and this stuff – this is such a great strategy and approach, and it's something that just like Jewish music and just like rabbinic ideas, bringing humor and laughter in your in your home is one of the best antidotes uh, for crisis and frustration and difficulty that you could that you could do for yourself and your children. Very important, especially for those who feel guilty when laughing at an inappropriate time. Very important you say that. No joke. Um, is there a uh, Mishpacha article this week or not? Have they given you the week Yes, off? no, there week? is a Mishpacha article this week. I This week, last week, I wrote about the five people who you're going to have at your Purim Suda. Right. This week is a more of like a rumination of my relationship through the years with Purim as mm. a child, as a yeshiva guy, and as a married person. The transition... Uh, from Purim, from a you know older bachelor, my Narius Rall days, the drop dead drunk episodes, oh, good, those those years into married Purim. That was a steep learning curve, my friend. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I learned and, quick. And, and probably a steep set of stairs. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and I talk about how my relationship with Purim is all about my relationship with expectations. That's what it is. Purim is all about the hype. What are you doing this year? What's your Shalach Manos theme? What are you dressing up as? Do you remember last year? Oh, is this year going to be good? And I write about how Purim has been a window for my relationship with either failed or uh, or fulfilled expectations. Do you attend any Purim Chagigot or Tishes during the uh, Wednesday night through Thursday night uh, time period? I I do, but they are they're off the they're off the grid. I have a very focused Asuda uh, with uh, l- less than a ham- We're lucky if we get a Mazuman. It is a very focused Asuda uh, with some of my dearest closest uh, friends. And it's like instead of like splashing water against the wall, it's like a focused uh, laser beam. It's very intense. It's very wonderful. It's very sweet. And then later, I participate in the uh, commencement ceremonies at the University of Purim. <laughs> Where does that take place? <laughs> I think it takes place in Gavi uh, Bellino Shul, in the Sixth Street. I, 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 I'm not sure if I have all the information. That's right here. Yeah, it's right here. But the University of Perm always has a commencement. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable! I'll tell you. Uh, are you one who writes Perm Torah, or uh, that's, that, nah, that's, not, that's I, not your forte? That's not my forte. I when disseminate you, and I enjoy it. And but uh, and did you ever write any Perm spiels during your career? Yes, like, that yes, was part yes, of your, yes, uh, yes. With my dear friend. Uh, Joey Ifra, who's my chavrusa, now a little bit my business partner. Uh, he uh, He's wonderful. He used to do. I mean, it was always in yeshiva. It was always the best guys who starred in the Purim yeah, Spiel. Of course. That's what it was. And I think that that's a telling thing, that humor, the people in the Purim Spiel, it wasn't the people in the back of the base match. It was right. the top guys in Rabbi Berkowitz this year in Yeshiva University. It was Rabbi Daniel Feldman, who was the top right. talent of Rabbi Schechter. Right. It's, always, it's always the very strong guys, because I think we need to prop that up as being able to learn a Rajba and say a good joke comes from the same type of mind.
Ah, Rabbi Vashevkin, this has been a real delight. I can't thank you enough for being here, and uh, always a joy to share both uh, sins and successes together. <laughs> and humor. Uh, synagogue, Sin and Failure in Jewish Thought. It's written by David Bashevkin. I'm assuming it's available everywhere. Yes. It's out there. Out there, Amazon, the whole Jewish thing. stores near you. Synagogue, everybody. Check it out. Or by David Bashevkin, by the way, if you're not familiar with what we are alluding to, in terms of all the humor and articles, Mishpacha Magazine features him on a regular basis in a very interesting column that usually gets one to laugh out loud, so you can check that out and uh, enjoy. Thursday morning broadcast, plenty more coming up. Keep it right here at JM in the AM. <laughs>